This morning's scripture reading comes from 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 to 21. If you're able to join me um, by looking into your Bibles or on your Bible apps, that would be great. Please stand with me as we read from 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 to 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, And God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. You may be seated. We are getting close to the end of this series on 1 John, just this week and next week, and both of these messages will be on the topic of assurance. Assurance often comes when you have both perspective and perseverance. You really need both to have a, a sense of assurance. And this is an opportunity for us to consider the many different ways that God has delivered and he has been faithful to his promises over time. Because especially in times of challenge and turmoil and trial, it's very easy to lose sight of perspective and to persevere through it all. Talk about a time where there's a lot of turmoil and trial and challenge. It's very easy in the midst of both COVID-19 and then everything that has transpired in the past week, couple of weeks, but really things that have been happening for quite a long time and we're seeing the fruits of a lot of systemic sin, um, a lot of injustices and real trials and challenges that have been rampant in every corner of our society. So put that together and it's easy to lose heart. It's easy to grow weary in the midst of it all. And so the question then becomes is, how can we have peace through all sorts of turmoil, both personal, societal, world-wide turmoil? How do we maintain our faith 
through it all? John gives us this answer. He actually gives us six ways that we can be assured. We're going to cover three this week, and then we're going to cover three the next week. And so the, the three assurances that we'll look at this week that I believe is so important for us both as believers and as the church, as individuals and as Christ's body in the midst of a people, a world that is literally, it seems like, falling apart. How do we know that God is truly sovereign and in control? We know because this week we'll look at three of them. We can have an assurance of eternal life according to verse 13. Secondly, according to verses 14 through 17, we can have an assurance that our prayers will be answered, of answered prayers. And then thirdly is that we have an assurance of freedom from sin's power, according to verse 18. And so we'll look at those three this week. The first assurance that we'll look at is that if we are believing in Jesus, we have eternal life. John writes in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I mean, that's pretty clear for us to see that John's making sure that we know, we know for certain that we have eternal life when we believe, when we are believing in Jesus. If we look at verse 13 again, that verb believe, when it says to you who believe, it's actually a present continuing tense. And that tense is so important. That grammatical point is very important because it's an emphasis on the idea that Christians are are believing, that there is a persistence in believing. It's not a one-time event. You raised your hand once and you believed. It's you are regularly, continually persisting to the very end. And no matter how much uh, difficulty and trial and all sorts of attacks from the enemy and his schemes, as well as your own soul and all the environment and everything that's going on, that we don't lose heart. We don't give up in believing. Remember, in John's church, this letter is being written to a church that has already dealt with a schism. A group of false teachers have gained a lot of following and have left, and probably a big portion of the church. And we're not talking about a large church. This is the early church. So if we feel disheartened when, if, if, if you can imagine if Wellspring were half of us were to leave and we were to split apart, it would be really disheartening for the church. How much more when the church is just starting and a large number of people leave due to false teaching? It would be hard to go the next day of meeting and feel good, to feel as though God is doing something. There's also outside pressures. If we think what we're seeing, if you turn on the news and you're really discouraged and you see the rioting and you see um, what happened to George Floyd and you see uh, the police cars being overturned and fires. And, and so regardless of what you believe about the circumstance and situation, there's a lot of turmoil. And John, he's writing to a church that also faced a lot of turmoil because to be a Christian in John's day and Peter's day, was to perhaps be thrown into a a coliseum filled with animals where you're torn apart or to be dragged and stoned to death or to be beheaded. It was very life-threatening to be a Christian. So you have a group of people who are leaving 
You have outside governmental pressures that are torturing, killing people. You have the very strong possibility that to believe in Jesus means that you were to lose your job. And some of us have even in the midst of COVID have lost their jobs. But imagine losing your job, not because of the economy or because a company turned you down, but because you are a Christian. How would you persist in the middle of that? How would your faith continue? Would you continue believing? It would be very tempting to feel as though you can't hold on to your faith any longer. So much is at stake. In fact, it would be very simple to say, I don't want to risk loving people. Do you see how much John has said, love one another, love one another? Because God has loved you, so you must love one another. And we hear that and we say, ah, you know, yeah, it's hard loving people in a church and different personalities and, you know, I have to go out of my way to care. Well, what about if all those pressures were to come in and suddenly the command is go to amongst these people, love them. They're already difficult to love because their people are just difficult to love. But by doing so, you put your life at risk. You put your family's well-being at risk. Would you still love? That's what John is saying. You know, it's so easy in the midst of turmoil to hunker down with your family, to take care of your own well-being, your own finances, your own health. It's easy to give up meeting together. That's why Hebrews writes so much about not giving up meeting together. You know, it's suddenly, just a week ago, we were talking about being sort of hunkered down and making sure you wear your mask and people who are either too legalistic about wearing masks or too not legalistic about wearing masks. And that was all the rage. And suddenly there are people demonstrating wearing masks all right next to you. Forget about social distancing. That doesn't mean so much anymore. Isn't it interesting how things can shift, but in a moment dependent on the circumstances, that which seems so important becomes not so important. That's our world. That's this life. And John is giving us a truth that says, hey, Christians, despite what you see and what is happening to you and your family, trust God and his word, not the swirling of circumstances around you. John's letter, where he is constantly seemingly sounding repetitive and redundant, obey Jesus by loving one another. And to do so is to rightly believe him. That we are to obey Jesus by loving one another regardless of ethnicity, of socioeconomic class, of the difficulty and challenges it is and it takes to love one another. That these are all interconnected. And if we're not doing this regularly, then we're losing sight of what it means to believe, to persist in faith. I can't think of how important this assurance is for us right now it's also possible as a church even that we're going to be meeting like this for the next few months and i know a lot of you are perhaps growing tired weary um just you know you have many opportunities to watch better preachers better worship services that are much more polished and if even just sitting there it's Easy to just turn this off and say, you know what? This isn't real anyway, so let's just forget about this because it's not that important. You're going to hear the devil's words because they are so cunning and so sweet. 
You don't have to tune in. What does it do anyway? It's not even really church. Just go take care of your family. Every generation of Christians under trial have heard those words, those sweet, tempting words that say, just go sleep. Sleep in. It's Why wake up? No one will know. Watch a recording. You can watch it any time. And you know how that goes. You put it off one day, two days, one week, and slowly but surely, our hearts fade. You know, you can lose your soul in those type of circumstances. And these words by John, this letter is meant to be sort of the the bucket of ice water that is poured on upon our head. It's meant to wake us up and to show us what is true. Look at the promise for those who are persevering in their believing. John writes these words so that you may know that you have eternal life. We can't take that too lightly. That it is possible to know that you have eternal life. You know, no other religion in this world teaches that you can have that type of assurance. If you're a Buddhist or a Muslim, it's all dependent on what you do, even if you're a Catholic. There's this idea that you can never be truly assured because you need to do more things to finally get to that assurance. John's saying, by believing in Christ and persisting, we know that we can have eternal life. That's a wonderful promise that keeps us at peace in the midst of turmoil. Eternal life is everything we truly desire because Jesus is there. And he provides the light, he provides the security, he provides the joy and satisfaction, he provides the fellowship, and that's all in Christ, and it's contingent on him. We aren't meant for this world. What an important time for us to know that to be true. Imagine if this is all there was, being stuck in your house, watching all sorts of turmoil and trial, injustices in our world. If this is our world, let us truly be Epicurean, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we will die because there is not much that we're going to celebrate right now. But we're not meant for this world. There will come a day, Jeff and I have been talking about this, and we will talk about this on Wednesday a lot, but there will come a day where broken relationships Racism, natural disasters, riots, famine, terrible politics from both sides, from both sides of the aisle, where all of that is gone forever. You know, we are created to find a rest in the only one who gives us rest. And that's not meant for a moment or a few decades or a century, but eternally. And so we have to recognize that by believing and trusting in him and by persisting in our faith in him to the end of our days, not simply yielding to the temptation to be a a family hermit or a spiritual hermit because it is a temptation in this time, in this season is to say, I don't need the church. Hey, I'm okay by myself. You're not okay. And to do so endangers your soul forever. Because John tells us that we have to persist. We have to continue in our faith, in life together, worshiping Christ. And to do so is what 
assures us that we, we have eternal life in him. So that assurance is so important. The second assurance is that you can be assured and confident that our God hears you when you pray. We see this in verses 14 through 17. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. What John is telling us is that we can be confident that God hears us when we pray, but there are some conditions that need to be met in order for God to want to hear us when we pray. He gives us these conditions in verses in these verses if that's a conditional word if we ask anything and here's the condition according to his will and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask we know so just in these two phrases we see three conditions that the net uh, the rest of the new testament matches up with so what are these conditions the first condition is that we are his children we have to be his children We just went through verse 13. We believe in Jesus through Christ. And Paul says in Galatians 4, 4 through 7, Romans 8, that we are God's sons and daughters when we believe in Jesus, when we are persisting in our faith in him. That means that we are adopted into God's family. We are God's children. And we can have this confidence towards him. We know that children can go to their fathers in times of need with any request and a loving father god is the ultimate loving father will not shush them away not brush them aside a loving father will always answer his children now sometimes the answer is no and that no is for the protection of that child sometimes he will say no you can't go to the park with a stranger that's dangerous a loving father has to say that But a loving father always answers his children. So we need to pray with confidence, according to this verse, that because we are children of God, and because we know that we are his children, he always answers us. And we never doubt that. So regardless of the prayer, when we pray, we know that there's an answer for us. We're never wondering, is God answering my prayer? You never think that way as a child of God. You're always knowing I anything, God will answer my prayer because I am his child, he is my father, and he loves me. People who pray, who are his children, know that with assurance. You know God is going to answer your prayer. Here's the second condition, though. We are praying. We have to pray in his will. Jesus said this before John said it. And th- according to his will, that's how we're supposed to pray, according to John. But John is saying that because Jesus said that. Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way. Thy will be done. Your will be done. Jesus also not only just said it, but he also modeled it. And he modeled it at where? Gethsemane. He modeled it by saying, Father, remove this cup from me. But not my will, your will be done. 
That was a very difficult prayer for Jesus to pray at that time because he knew that it was so much more than Jesus being physically suffering and and going to that cross. He was going to be separated from the Father, forsaken, cursed. That's the last thing he ever wanted. And yet, before the foundations of the world, God chose us in him. He predestined us. And because of that reality, in that sovereign plan, Jesus submitted to the Father's will with delight. He laid down himself for his own sake. He wanted to do that so that he might save us. That's Jesus' desire. That was the Father's plan. But in that moment, oh, the angst that Jesus faced. And so when he says, not my will, but your will be done, it is obvious that that doesn't mean that it's going to be an easy prayer. I mean, all we need to do is look at Jesus. When you pray that way, you're praying, I trust you, Father. This is, I know this is going to be gut-wrenching. It could be grievous. You could be mourning because of it. You could have lost a child, a loved one. But you say, not my will, but your will be done. You know, to pray like that means that you understand who God is. You believe God as Father. And sometimes the two align where you're praying, not my will, but your will be done, but you're also praying, Father, I want this. Sometimes those two align. And the more you know Jesus, the more that aligns together in prayer. That when you pray, you are praying in the Father's will. But oh, there are so many times we go to God with selfish motives that Ultimately, maybe sometimes we're even self-deceived about it. We're trying to make ourselves bigger and God lesser. You know, it's the prodigal son's request. Give me my share of inheritance. And the translation is, I don't care about you, Father. I only care about what I want. And whether, if we're going to be really honest with ourselves, how often we go to our, our Father in heaven with prayer. And of course, when we look at this condition, The father says, I will not answer that prayer. In fact, it'll be no. And a real child trusts that that is from a loving father and that no is ultimately for our good. James describes it this way. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Even the most godly of people who are pursuing Christ and his kingdom can get this sorely wrong. Tim Keller tells the story of George Whitfield. Many of you know George Whitfield, who was a, just a, a, a renowned evangelist of the gospel, proclaiming Christ, loved the Lord with a deep passion. He was one of the, the main preachers of the Great Awakening in North America and in England. He was also an incredible preacher, very gifted. Um, he's often thought of to be one of the greatest preachers of church history. In late 1743, his first child, a son, was born to his, he and his wife, Elizabeth. And Whitfield had this very strong impression that God was telling him that this child will grow up to be, quote, a preacher of the everlasting gospel. Maybe some of you have that heart and as parents and you're thinking, my child is going to be a preacher of the everlasting gospel. Well, in view of this assurance, he gave his son the name John after John the Baptist, whose mother was also. 
And when John Whitfield was born, George baptized his son before a large crowd and preached a great sermon on the great works that God was going to do through his son. The crowd, there were a lot of cynics sneering at his prophecy, but he ignored them. Then just four months later, his son died of a seizure. The Whitfields were grief-stricken, but George was so convicted about how wrong he had been to count his inward impulses and intuitions to being equal to God's word. Whitfield had interpreted his feelings, thinking that his understandings, his prayers in going to God was actually exactly what God wanted. And it took tragically the death of his son to realize this. And in a prayer that he wrote for himself towards the Lord, he said that God would render this mistaken parent more cautious, more sober-minded, more experienced in Satan's devices, and consequently more useful in his future labors to the church of God. What a tragic story, but it's a story for many of us, and it's a warning that we can have what seems like exteriorly in heart for God in our prayers and saying, God, I want you to do this. Would you do this for me? But in reality, it's, there's a self-centeredness. It's, God, help me, to, help me to get this job. If I get this job, then I'll make all this money and I'll give it all to you and I'll use it for missions. Frankly, I've actually heard that many times from many different people. And you can see in that, are they really going to do it? And tragically, I have yet, I've heard many, uh, numerous people say that. I've actually never seen it done. It's far too easy to say, God, I'm going to do this for you. But you could see almost a tinge of the self-centeredness that is out there. And perhaps we're not really willing to be honest with ourselves and recognize that. Actually, this is for me. So let us pray. But the second condition is so important. Pray the prayer at Gethsemane. Well, that's a very, very hard prayer. But the fruitfulness of that is everlasting. The third condition is we have to believe he will answer when we pray in his will. We actually have to believe that he's going to answer. Again, we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know it to be true. We have faith that we can ask anything. So I don't want the second condition to stop you from praying. If you're growing in his will and believing and persisting, then you will pray in in his will and you can and should and must ask more and more. John 15, 7 says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, Jesus says, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. Jesus says in Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. I mean, that sounds audacious, but it has to be in line with John fifteen seven. Ask whatever you wish, anything, but you have to be abiding in Jesus. You have to actually be aligned with who he is, his character, his faithfulness, his goodness, his renown. The more you're concerned about Jesus, his glory, his renown, his name, his fame, The more you're enthralled by him, the more you become happier in him. And the more you're happier in him, you can ask anything 
And Jesus promises he's going to answer you. The Father loves to answer you. We're told by Paul in Romans 8.26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The person who is growing, delighting, loving, we are being helped even when we're weak, even when we're frail, even in our weak prayers. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. A person who's growing more and more with Christ, sometimes we actually almost don't know what to pray or how to pray, but you do, you are growing. You are delighting. And sometimes the Spirit, He just comes suddenly and He prompts you to pray. At all times of the day, at any moment, at any time. It's sometimes in your closet, sometimes in your car, sometimes as you're walking to the market, sometimes as you're playing with your children in the field. Friends, if you are delighting in Jesus, in his word, in the gospel, in prayer, the spirit will prompt you to pray suddenly. All sorts of things for all sorts of people at any time. And rather than pushing that aside, pray. Be sensitive to God by his spirit telling you, pray now, right at this moment. Because frankly, it's really awkward sometimes that it's weird sometimes when you're maybe with somebody and suddenly say, hey, can we pray right now? And they're like, where did that come from? Really, sometimes the Holy Spirit prompts you in that moment, you need to pray. I've, I've felt that many times and there have been many times where it, I'm talking to someone and it's been just so odd. I don't, to just jump in and say, can we pray? And then I don't say anything and I walk away and there's this emptiness. There's an empty feeling. And I really do believe it's because I didn't obey the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you need to stop and ask someone, can I pray for you? And you're listening to a story, someone sharing their brokenness. And you say, I'll pray for you. Rather than saying, I'll pray for you and letting it go. Because you know how that goes. You say, I'll pray for you. And then you just forget to pray for them. It is so, the reason why you're saying I'll pray for you is because the Holy Spirit is prompting you to say pray for this person. I need you to pray for this person because you know that if you are in Christ and you're growing and delighting in him that he wants to answer your prayer but you need to actually pray as though he, you believe it to be true. And that means now, right now because again, we forget we don't prioritize it or it becomes this cliche. I'll pray for you. It's almost like saying, I, I you know, bye. <laughs> it's almost like saying some sort of greeting. I'll pray for you becomes a greeting, not a, a real act of faith, a movement of the Holy Spirit. So my friends, I really want to encourage and I hope Wellspring becomes this type of church that literally wherever we are, whatever we're doing, that we can go up to each other and as you're talking and if something strikes you and you know, you should think that something is someone, the Holy Spirit. He's saying, pray, I need you to pray for that person right now. I pray that we would be that type of church that is just regularly seeking to pray for people. We believe his word. We believe it to be true. So Christian, know that the Spirit leads you to pray, 
to draw others to Jesus through prayer. John tells us also one major prayer we should pray is in verses 16 through 17. Pray for fellow brothers and sisters who for whatever reason have closed their hearts to Jesus and do not stop praying for them. It's very easy to talk about people. It's so hard to pray for them. You notice that? I know that to be true about myself. I can spend hours talking to someone, counseling them. And maybe... It's so easy to talk about, oh, this person's struggling. This person's not doing well. But what John is saying is we need to pray for them according to verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. It's not just that the brother, it's anyone who sees should ask for his brother. And if we pray, God will give him life. Now, this is referring to someone who is a believer because John says, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death, eternal death. That is to say that, but the challenge is we don't know who that's referring to. I'm not knowing exactly who is leading to eternal death. So I have to pray as though they are not committing a sin that leads to eternal death because only the Lord knows that. But God uses our prayers And so we have to actually, when you see someone struggling spiritually, rather than critiquing them, let's pray for them. If you see someone who is overburdened, worried, maybe slowly giving up meeting together, maybe you hear about the fact that they're not right now even listening to worship, they're not coming, call them up and say, can I pray for you? Or you can say, I want you to know I am praying for you. And let's pray for them. Here's the promise. It's no small thing. God hears us. He does. And he can use us as a means by which he saves his people. So I really want to encourage you. Do not stop praying for people. Pray at all times, at all seasons. In the upcoming series on spiritual warfare, we're going to talk about praying in the spirit at all times. And what that, why we will press in deeper into this, but I do want to encourage you. Do not stop praying for one another. Pray in his will. Believe that he will answer. The third assurance is that we are free from the power of sin. Verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has, who was born of God protects God, protects him and the evil one does not touch him. I'm going to look at the second part of verse 18 next week. But here, this third assurance is we do not have to keep on sinning. Do not mistake this to mean that we will or can be perfect from sin in this world. That's not what John is saying. In fact, we know quite the opposite. John has gone through great lengths to tell us we are still going to sin in this world. John 1.10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So John's pretty clear about saying Christians do sin. So do not be discouraged if you think, wow, I should have conquered sin forever right now. No, Christians still sin. But there is a big difference in saying that Christians still sin and Christians make it a practice to sin. In fact, quite the opposite. John says in 1 John 3, 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 
That's really the same thing. It's a reiteration in verse 18a of chapter 3, verse 9. We do not have to sin, meaning we can decide not to sin. Whereas before Christ, we could only sin. In fact, we never even thought of sin as sin. We just did it. We did whatever we wanted, anytime, we didn't care about Christ at all. So think back to your life before you knew Jesus. Did you try not to sin before you knew Christ? No. It's just, that's not what you even think about. You just do it because you do whatever you think is right. Even your moral goodness, even if you were trying to be Christian-like without actually being saved or born again, even that in and of itself is sinful. There's a, we just couldn't help ourselves. That's who we are. That's, that's the idea of sin being going against God and doing everything opposite of what God wants of us. That was our nature. But once we are born again, we are convicted by guilt when we sin. We don't want to sin anymore. We, don't, we want to change. There, there's a desire to, and we are actually able not to sin. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones tells the story of a pastor who has a hard time preparing his sermons because he has young children. And they're so rowdy. And he gets so angry with his kids. And then he felt so guilty because here he is preparing his, to preach before God's people. And he's angry with his kids. They're so rowdy. And he, he confessed his, this sin to Martin Lloyd-Jones because he was so flabbergasted that he could not control, like stop being angry. And what Lloyd-Jones told him is that it is a blessing that he realizes that he is angry and sinning against God. I think so many of us think, wow, I sinned this sin and I just feel so guilty and I want to change. I don't know if any of us have ever thought of the fact that it's a blessing to even realize that we're sinning. And then you want to fight that sin. And the fight, the desire to battle it and to say, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to persist in this fight. And again, this is something we're going to cover in much detail in this next series. But I'm going to persist. I'm going to fight. I will not give up. And though we stumble and fall and fail, we get up again. We fight again. We do not yield. We do not give up. We stand firm. We, sh- we shod our feet with the gospel of peace. So we're fighting lust. We're fighting anger. That desire is the assurance that we are in faith, that we have actually the freedom from the power of sin because the power of sin used to be you had no hope of ever overcoming that. But at the blood of Christ, I mean, at the cross by the blood of Christ, when we trust in him, We are freed from the guilt and the legal guilt of sin forever. And we're also freed, according to Romans 6, from the power of sin. And according to this verse, forever. We don't have to sin all the time, every second. We can be assured that we're freed from this power because we are born of God. We have his DNA. We have his indwelling Holy Spirit. Those are three assurances. There's three more that reminds us that you are in Christ. We do not have to be afraid. We can look around our world and not feel discouraged. 
We have our hope in him.